0: It's the TEH Podcast, episode number 190. I'm Leo Notenboom, askleo.com.
1: And I'm Gary Rosenzweig of macmost.com.
0: I'm all excited. Yeah? I don't know if you saw, I shared on Facebook, a, a screen grab of my speedtest.net results. Mm, what are and, they? Um, 800. 800 ah. down, 800 ah. down 40 up. It's not gigabit. Um, it's not quite gigabit, uh, yeah, which is, it's which is intentional. It's intentional. gigabit. I was going to yeah. say it's cl- close enough.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and uh, honestly, I'm not sure I've got the equipment that would handle gigabit or better, uh, which was offered to me. I actually, basically what happened is I reached out to uh, to my ISP, uh, Comcast in this case, Comcast Small Business, and said, okay, you know what, what, what you got? <laughs> Here's where I'm at, which was like 200. Um, what, what can you do for me? And they offered me, um I think this is technically seven fifty, and then the other one was uh, twelve fifty or something like that, you know beyond gigabit. Mm-hmm. And then basically, I this eight hundred will keep me more than happy for some time. So yeah, uh, fired that up yesterday. and uh, oh yeah, it's uh, it's zippy. Um, the uh, the internet speed is no longer my choke point. Um, now yeah. I have to identify all the other choke points, like, you know, the speed of my browser, or in many cases, as it turns out, the speed of the server to which I am connecting. Oh, sure. Right. Yeah. At, 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 you know, when you're, when you're dealing with these kind of internet speeds now, um, a lot of the services that you're dealing with, well, hopefully they have a faster connection, but it's, you know, not necessarily fast enough to really saturate a, a gigabit connection. Mm-hmm. One of the things I found out, um, before doing the upgrade, is that uh, one of the things that happens on my system overnight is I basically download a bunch of uh, backup images of uh, my production servers. And I discovered that with the old configuration, um, an SSH or literally an SFTP connection would saturate my internet connection to the point where while that download was happening, uh, which was to a specific box running Linux in my basement. Um, all of the other machines would suddenly decide that they couldn't connect to the internet anymore huh. because SFTP had basically taken over um, the internet connection which you know which is great. I mean that great means that's a that's a pretty darn effective download tool, Um, but fortunately there are options to to throttle the bandwidth that it uses in the process. And I actually had to implement those so that other machines could keep working while that was going on. Uh, I need to rerun that experiment to see if that still happens now uh, with this faster internet. But anyway, so yes, do I sound any faster? (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know, we should be able to get the uh tech enthusiast hour um show done in 45 minutes today i'm thinking i'm gonna say yeah yeah
0: a little faster
1: Definitely. so anyway
0: that's that's what's uh that's what's got me enthusiastic today it's kind of cool
1: cool i don't i don't have anything quite uh quite like that on the the tech side of things um right. i was doing some experiments i i thought this was worth mentioning A small item here. Um, So I've talked about before, I've got this uh, app for Mac called Clip Tools, which is like Mm -hmm. a clipboard manager that does all sorts of funky, weird things that people hopefully will find useful. I think a lot of people do. The feedback I'm getting says Mm -hmm. they do. And one of those things is doing math calculations. Mm -hmm. Um, So you can say, select like a math calculation that's in a document uh, and say, give me the answer to that. So, you know, I can have two plus two and you could select it and give me the answer and you either replace two plus two with four, or it'll say two plus two equals four. Um, you could also just ask it in, instead of pasting something, you could say, uh, calculate something for me and it gives you a little prompt and then you could type two plus two hit return and it paste for wherever you were. So you can basically do a calculation like you can on Mac and Windows, but the paste is implied. It's Mm -hmm. automatically done. So that's kind of cool. But, you know, it's not it's not always two plus two. Right. It's there's uh, multiplication division, which brings an order of operations. So two plus three times four is not you can't process it in order you have to do the multiplication first right, right there's right. parentheses and there's even some functions like a power function you know two to the power of three or the cosine of whatever and i support all those by using a standard library to um you basically you know throw this library a string of text and say this is a calculation give me the answer and this library you know uh, is a black box that basically shoots it back out to me as, a, as an answer, which is great. So I didn't have to go and spend weeks making my own. Right? That's the right. beauty of open source, <laughs> you know, communities. I didn't have to make my own to do this. Um, so the so I have that, but yeah, it's probably you know there's still problems. Like one of them was that after my initial release, somebody pointed out that oh sure, so a period is decimal and a comma is a thousand separator for you in the United States, <laughs> but not necessarily for me over here in Germany or wherever. Right. right. And which made me have to look into the whole, know, th- I knew about that. I knew that some places you use commas instead of periods. So I had to actually researched that and find out well, what's the real deal here. Because it turns out it's not just, oh, Europe uses a comma as a decimal, not at all. Some countries in Europe do, others use a period like in the United States. And on top of that, a lot of professions like in science, mathematics, uh, engineering and stuff, period's universal decimal, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're actually working with like, you know, real math and research, it's the period's always a decimal. It's only when you kind of are writing something that, you know, maybe you have the period as the thousand separator and the and the, uh, comma commas, the decimal sometimes. Mm-hmm. So, um, but I wanted to accommodate and, and Mac OS of course has a thing in the system where you could say, yes, I use the comma as my decimal mm-hmm. and I could detect that in my app and I could react to that. So I could say, great, the comma is, is now the decimal. And unfortunately this library says, I don't care. Periods is decimal. <laughs> so I just, so I just went and said, great, I'll change all the commas to decimals, to, to periods, right? To be decimals, okay. feed it into the library. And when I get it back out, any period, change back to a comma. Done. Works 100% of the time, except it doesn't. Um, because <laughs> uh, a couple things. First of all, I was being uh, g- giving some accommodation to a comma as a thousand separator. So you could actually select some text that was like 1,000 with a comma after the one, you know, plus seven and get the answer 1,007. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I figured that might be something you, you write. And if you want to calculate it, you know. So, I have to deal with that. So, I had to actually take any commas, convert them to something else, then convert the periods. The, the other, I don't know. I had to do a, multiple conversions to get everything to work right, right. If you chose to do the opposite. And I forgot about the fact uh, that there were functions like power, where you would have two parameters, one being the number and the second being the power you're raising it to. Right. Uh, or arctangent. And there are a few other things that had multiple parameters in the math function and a comma is the separator for those.
0: Oh, right. Yep.
1: Yep. Yeah. So <laughs> my, like if I, you did like two to the two squared would be pal parenthesis two comma two close parentheses. which is not 2.2. Uh, 2. Yes. It would be <laughs> yeah. 2.2 2 <laughs> given error because there's only one parameter and it was a mess. So it just shows you, this is a good example of why software developers, you know, when you ask the software developer, Hey, here's a simple, thing I want you to do for me it's not simple
0: it's never simple
1: because <laughs> all it was was like oh it'd be nice <laughs> if I supported commas as decimals okay and then I go down this whole road now where I'm learning all this stuff changing things and even after I think I got it right I release a version where it basically breaks all these functions anyway I fixed it I basically fixed it by saying look I'm still going to accommodate the comma as a decimal if that's what your system is set to but if there's a function detected no. <laughs> if there's a function like, you know, there, any use of uh, functions is just going to be like, no, I'm not going to go and process that. So, yeah. And uh, now doing all that work made me think, did I break something else? Because there's a lot of filtering now going in and out of this calculation thing. So I should test, but you know, tests tend up to not work because you just think of things like two plus two and they're like, it works, great. And then you don't realize that, okay, well, what about 257.3895 divided by 5.3? You know, that kind right. of thing. Right. So I said, oh, I should feed it a bunch of problems that I didn't think of. How can I get some problems I didn't think of? Oh, enter chat GPT. Cool. And I asked chat GPT to give me a list of 50 math problems. And I told it I wanted all uh, types of operations. I wanted parentheses to be used for a lot of them. And I wanted numbers to be in the range of, you know, one to, uh, you know, 999,000 or whatever. Give me a whole bunch of stuff. And it generated a bunch of problems. The interesting thing was that uh, I needed the answers to those problems because I could test it and say, great. Okay, I got an answer, is the answer right? Uh, so I asked ChatGPT to give me the answers, too. So it did. It gave me a list of 50 problems. It's still basic math. I'm not doing any, like, you know, cosines or anything. It's just, you know, multiply this by that, you know, add this and parentheses and all. And it looked like, a, you know, homework you might get in, uh, I don't know, what, sixth grade, seventh grade, whatever. So uh, with the answers. So then I started uh, using my thing. You know, I put it into a text document. It's real easy with Clip Tools to go in, select the math formula that's there and say, calculate. And then I get the answer and the answer chat GPT gave me, it was right next to it. Um, Perfect works. First one, second one, third one, fourth one, just going down the list. Okay. Everything's working great. And I get to like number 12 or something and I got a different answer. Oh no. What did I do? <laughs> what is wrong with my thing that it gave me an answer that's similar yet different. So I looked at it and I just quick calculation in my head. Cause it wasn't too hard to do that particular one and i was like wait a minute i think mine is rice and sure enough i fed it into spotlight on the mac and clip tools was right uh well, that meant chat gpt was wrong imagine that the answer it gave for a simple math problem was wrong so i moved that one aside as an anomaly and i <laughs> kept going through the list and i found three others out of 50 that were wrong they were all very similar answers and here's what was interesting they're all very convincing looking answers of course, like you look you look at the problem and you look at the answer and you say, "Yeah, that seems about right," but it was off by like it would said it like two eighty seven, it would be two eighty four, or something for the answer. You know, it was like, "Huh, okay." So then I started <laughs> to go in and um, ask ChatGPT uh, explain number fifteen, right? And it would actually give me an explanation of number 15. And it was interesting because I guessed it for all of them. And it, it and sometimes it gave me, oh, okay, here's an explanation and its explanation had the correct answer at the end of it. So oh, it only gave yes. me the wrong answer. <laughs> yeah, that first time. But one time it didn't. One time it did the calculation and at some point there was a division in there and it was wrong from that point on and it gave me the wrong answer. And then the cool thing was is I was able to challenge it. And I said, right. "No, that's not correct." The correct answer is this and it actually responded with well if we look at this 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 yes you're indeed right that is the correct answer my original answer was wrong i'm sorry
0: that's funny it's you know <laughs> honestly what you just described sounds a lot like someone in sixth grade right i yes. mean they would they would they would absolutely give you all the answers some of them would be wrong and when you force them to explain it they would come up with the right answer <laughs>
1: exactly so you know the thing is it's like supposed to be artificial intelligence it's not supposed to be an artificial computing machine right it's simulating intelligence which (laughs) apparently means you know getting like an a in math not an a plus just an a
0: i was going to go for a b or a c myself based on what you just
1: described but (laughs) four you get four out of 50 wrong so that's a 92 on your Um... on your math test you know
0: what I think is funny is that I did see somebody say, you know, ask it, okay, what's two plus two? And this is four. I says, yeah. no, it's not. It's five. Yeah. And and ChatGPT responds and says, no, it's four. No, it it is five. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I'm wrong. Mm. So we were able, you know, apparently this person was able to convince it at least for the duration of that chat session that two plus two equals five. Um, interesting yeah yeah um i <laughs> yeah math is hard i asked it for a list of a um, hundred things and apparently uh, 100 equals 35 I, I got 35 well yeah
1: it cuts uh, it because it cuts you off after a certain length and i think if you ask it nicely <laughs> it'll continue it'll be like oh give me the rest and it'll be like oh okay here's the rest right um it assumes that it's like oh 90 plus percent of people don't care after a certain point in the response and if they do care they'll ask me some more and they saves processing uh, right, power right um doing that so but
0: yeah i i yeah, I. so yes not doing math i would not rely well i wouldn't rely on chat gpt for a lot of different things but um doing the math uh for anything um even mildly important is not something that, not something I would consider chat GPT yeah. to be an answer for. It's funny because I was having a discussion earlier this morning with someone who uh, uh, who was using it to do a little bit of research um, mm-hmm. to come up with some quotes. And I had to remind them that um, apparently chat GPT has been known to um, uh, uh, come up with quotes that simply don't exist. Um, that they will it will quote it, quote something and it will actually give you a citation for the quote and the site will um, uh, basically point to a quote that doesn't exist in a publication that doesn't exist so yes. it's it's very bizarre um where and this you've heard of it I'm sure it's called hallucinating it basically chat yes. GPT hallucinates it makes stuff up and what that does though part of me says you know that's probably a good thing because if, It's training us, in a sense, to not trust it, not trust it completely. Um, And that puts the the onus on us Mm. to confirm that the information we're getting out of chat GPT is in fact accurate. What I told uh, this person to do was to, yeah, great. Do the research. Let it do the research, treat it like an intern or a trainee or something like that, but double check everything, make sure that all the citations actually exist. Um, And if they do great, that's a bunch of work. You didn't have to do a bunch of research that you didn't have to do, but otherwise um, you know, you can't just trust it blindly. And I think, Training us, training everybody that uses ChatGPT to not trust it blindly is probably a really, really good thing.
1: It is, yeah. Well, <laughs> uh, and just to remember, it's you know what it's tr- what the goal of uh, an AI chatbot is is to simulate a human chatting, and humans get things wrong all mm-hmm. the time. I actually, uh, I have a video in a can that will will be up uh, later this week, probably. Uh, about using Chat GPT and Bard as tech support. And <laughs> it, it actually it actually so I started off thinking, hey, great, great topic. I'll show people how to use it for ch- uh, tech support. Then I realized it, how sometimes it gets it wrong, and then right. it changed into like warnings about using it as tech support. And then I kind of shifted back to using it as tech support because even though it didn't always get everything right, on the whole, it was better than searching online for that same tech support. Oh, yeah. Because there's so much bad information out there and so much information out there that I found that I was easily, you know, because I was trying to, I was easily able to get it to tell, give me something wrong. Sometimes it's something simple. It's just telling you the wrong menu item to look for mm-hmm. or something like that. You know, it's not like a big, th- you know, huge thing, like, you know, throw your computer out the window. It was just like, ah, I was a little off, but it was off in a way that like a person you might be asking the same question of might be off. Uh, I certainly have my share of people say, ask me a question. Hey, where do I find the setting? And I tell them and say, oh, I can't find it there. And I realized, oh, the menu was actually type this, right. not exactly what I said, right? I just remembered I was basically, but. ChatGPT was basically doing the same thing in some cases, Um, and it wasn't too bad. And then it had the big advantage that when you ask somebody something online, you have to wait for an answer, like on a forum, that could be days. Mm -hmm. Um, ChatGPT, even though the level of accuracy may be about the same, you you never have to wait. Right, right. (laughs) So you'll get your wrong answer faster. (laughs)
0: The <laughs> the other thing though that I do appreciate out of Chat GPT again, even with the um, the errors, mm. is that it very often will remind me of things that I wouldn't have thought of of my on my own. Right. So, you know, I'll ask it, I don't know, some kind of a problem and it'll say, well, you know, it could be this, could be this, could be this, could be this, of which like two or three are the ones that I would have thought of. And that number four is one that, oh yeah, yeah, that applies too. Um, So that kind of stuff, just rather than looking, from my perspective, rather than looking at it for answers, looking at it for ideas is a significantly better way of looking at it. Um, it's not going to, you know, give you an answer on a silver platter. It might, you could get lucky, but um, yeah. if you think, if you think of it going in as just giving you ideas for places to look or things to look into or whatever, I think that's a much, um, I'll just call it a safer or perhaps more realistic of u- a way of using it. Given where the technology is right now, what I love is that, you know, yes, a real human would have errors. So does that mean that chat GPT is really, really, really good at mimicking humans or are we really looking at it to be accurate, <laughs> right? Um, I think yeah. that that's that's something that uh, will be interesting to see how it plays out. Um, Nobody I, likes
1: to know it all, I, <laughs> and yet
0: we ex, we expect that from our technology, though, right? right? So what what are people's expectations? Do they do they want the best of both worlds here, right? Do they want this to mimic? A perfect human, uh, uh, you know, not necessarily a know-it-all, because that's as much about attitude as it is anything else. But someone who actually knows all the correct answers, uh, in in quote unquote uh, chat or human form, I suspect that's what people are expecting, and certainly we're not there yet.
1: Yeah, I think. Uh, well, I think it's just a matter of now that we have like mass testing of these these chatbots, because Mm -hmm. really, you know, you go back to say November and what, there's a handful of people relative to the whole world that had actually tried these things out. Mm -hmm. And now it's millions and millions, hundreds of millions of people. So now we've learned, we're learning these things. And I think the idea is that the next generation of chatbots needs to be, um, it, it needs to be able to differentiate between facts. And usually we say facts and opinions. It's not opinions here. It's, facts and things that aren't necessarily facts ideas inspiration uh things that are nebulous like when you ask about things that don't have a definitive answer like two plus two that kind of thing differentiate between them and when it's it's a hard fact then that needs to go and be processed in such a way that an accurate answer is given but it doesn't have to become this like highly I guess you know know-it-all kind of thing, where the rest of it needs to be. You know if you ask for ten ideas of fun things to do this weekend, it shouldn't be like, oh, I have to come up with ten things that are actually factually fun. The ten things, Objective yes. things. That, you know, it doesn't need to do that at all. It could be like, okay, here's some ideas. But then if it says the address of this mini golf place is this, that's a fact, and it needs to make sure that that's right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Be interesting
0: well, to see where it goes.
1: Uh, yeah
0: um so to switch gears for a minute um uh, very briefly uh you and I are both big fans of two-factor authentication yeah. um and two-factor authentication comes in a multitude of different forms the most common ones being uh, ranging from I'll call it um, even least secure um, in the realm of two-factor authentication to most. Uh, we have at the, the low end things like SMS and email, where you get a, a code via those mechanisms when you try to log into a place for the first time. There's the Google Authenticator, which is an app that runs on your your mobile device that gives you a number that changes over time in a basically an encrypted relationship with the server. Um, and then at the high end, of course, there are things like physical keys, like YubiKeys and... Um, and other devices like that. Uh, a lot of people avoid SMS because they think it's easily hackable. It's not. It is more vulnerable to things like uh, SIM swapping. But again, that's not something you hear about, you know, like on a daily basis at all. Um, it can happen, but proper security can, you know, at least dramatically reduce the uh, the impact. Um, and as I've long said, any two-factor is better than no two-factor at all. Mm-hmm. But... One of the things that has prevented people from using Google Authenticator, which I consider to be the, um, the most pragmatic two-factor uh, solution across the board, is that when you're using the Google two-factor authentication app on your phone, um, it is literally only on your phone. What that means is that if you lose your phone, you have lost your second factor. Now, that doesn't prevent you from accessing your accounts. It just means uh, that accessing your accounts becomes an order of magnitude more complex as you have to revert to backup uh, alternate authentication mechanisms and who knows what other hoops you end up having to jump through to prove that you are you. As a result, uh, for years now, I've been using an app called Authy. The difference between Google Authenticator and Authy is simply that Authy allows you to uh, basically, back up your Google Authenticator codes, the encrypted information, to their cloud. That does two things. One, it gives you a backup. If you lose your phone, you get another phone, you install Authy, you resync with your stuff, and all your two factor codes are back. But the other thing that I think is also most interesting about Authy is that you can have Authy installed on multiple devices. And I do. This turns out to be pragmatic for me because, of course, I can use it on my phone, I can use it on my iPad, I can use it on my desktop, and they're all in sync. They all provide the same two-factor code, so I don't always have to have my mobile device with me. The other thing that is very, very useful for Authy in this scenario is if you happen to have two people that share an account like say a husband and wife who share the same account that you actually want to have two-factor on, but you want them both to be able to access that account independently. Um, Install Authy on both devices, on both phones, for example, and boom, they both have access to the same two-factor authentication code. All this is a really long windup to say that finally, as of like right about now, Google Authenticator is being upgraded so that your Google Authentication your Google Authenticator authentication tokens will be backed up in your Google account and you can install Google Authenticator on multiple devices with that information. So basically it's replicating the biggest feature of Authy. Now I know a lot of people are a little bit uncomfortable with Authy just because it's a third party. It's a third party that they don't necessarily like for some reason, whatever. Um, I've had no problem. I think it's Twilio, if I'm not mistaken, that um, that owns Authy, but... For every company, there are going to be detractors. So bottom line here is that if you don't have to have a third party, you just could use Google Authenticator um, and have it uh, back up your codes and replicate across a bunch of different devices. I'm very pleased that they did this because, like I said, anything that removes a barrier to people adopting two-factor authentication is a good thing. I'm just surprised it took them this long. Um but yeah, I just read about that this morning before we fired up the recording. So I uh, I wanted to pass that along to to everybody who um, is using two-factor or who should be using two-factor, which is everybody.
1: Well, cool. you know, uh, I used to use Google Authenticator, you know, the app, and that was one of the frustrating things about it. The way I got around it was that if I needed to change my two-factor token, mm-hmm. um, I needed to change it everywhere. Right. So if I if I changed it, um, I usually what I I didn't want to just have it in one place. So I had my iPhone and I had my iPad, right? Uh, or in the early days, and I'd have Google Authenticator running on both, and it would generate that that code, the QR code,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: I'd have both devices scan it. So I'd have to right. have both devices ready to go. I'd scan it, and then they both be basically in sync, without that syncing capability. Obviously, exactly. solve that problem, and then. Apple having it built into their password. Actually, it, Authy solved the problem for me. A Few years later, one password had it built in. Yes. So then that yeah. solved the problem. But then Apple almost immediately followed with their own thing. Right. And <laughs> and now a Google Authenticator is like a distant memory. Like I I haven't used Google Authenticator in um. years.
0: I have noticed in uh, I'm using one password now as my password manager and I have noticed that they have uh, two factor support the quote unquote problem, if you will, is that I have a lot of existing accounts for which I already have two factor set up and the code. That was Mm. available at the time when I set up two-factor authentication is no longer available, right? They only show you the QR code once. Sometimes they'll show you the textual key that's associated with that. Mm. Um, So I don't have that anymore. So I can't migrate those two-factor authentications over to 1Password in any way other than disable two-factor authentication and then re-enable it and this time capture the code. The other thing that I had been doing in the past before, in fact, I still do this just because I'm a paranoid guy. Um, When a QR code is displayed, I screenshot it uh, and I save that in a safe location because then no matter which uh, authenticator app I use, all I really need to do is re-display the QR code And install, you know, insert that then into the into the authenticator app. So that's another way to protect yourself from this kind of stuff. But again, it does require um, an additional step at the time you set up two factor authentication to save that information in a way you can use later.
1: Yep. So cool. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I actually, and you know, I, I it occurred to me while you were just talking that it's wrong for me to say that I haven't touched it in years, because there was a what was it? There was a, an instance where I actually had to bring it up to log into a Google account. So it wasn't, I was using it for, you know, because you can use it for other things as well, but there was a case where I was on the, another device recently and it, and I tried to get it to send it to me another way and it just didn't. So I said, give me the other options. And it said, Google Authenticator. And I said, oh, got it. And I reopened the app. So it still does come in handy. Huh. Um, yeah, Cool. Um, All right. Speaking of of using other devices. Yes. uh, There was an interesting article in The Verge uh, about uh, school computers. And turns out in 2020, a lot of schools, I wonder why in 2020, uh, a lot of schools (laughs) distributed Chromebooks to students. Okay, that, of course, was the year because of the pandemic that a lot of schools were like, every kid has to have access to doing online classes. Uh, so a lot of Chromebooks were bought, distributed to students with the expectation that those Chromebooks would last for some period of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I assume kids returning them as they graduated or you know in the summer, new kids getting these old Chromebooks and all that and continuing to use them. Well, it's 2023 20, and uh, no big surprise here, but, uh, a lot of these Chromebooks are old and broken now. Yeah, um, kids are kind of hard on equipment. Imagine hard, that. Yeah. Well, even you know, even a kid that you know is not a, is not doing all the kid stuff with them. It's still it, anything that goes in and out of a backpack mm-hmm. all the time. Sure. I mean, it's it's a whole different deal. Like as an older professional, I have laptops, but I am not sticking them in my lap in a backpack every day, carrying them around with me, pulling them in and out. And all of that, it's like bouncing
0: around and they don't get
1: that level of like, you know, just everyday stress that you would if you go to school.
0: I think the term is abuse, but yeah,
1: abuse. (laughs) And, uh, it's, uh, so yeah, a lot of them are breaking now. And, um, so this article is kind of interesting and it suggests, and I kind of agree that, that maybe, uh, the tech for students should be tougher, um, And and, and when you think about it, the whole idea of a Chromebook and a lot of the the cheaper laptops you can get is let's make them as cheap as possible so they're as affordable as possible Mm -hmm. as a consumer product. And if you want, if you're of the mind to do it, you can get a pretty cheap laptop now and take really good care of it, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe you don't even carry it around with you, or maybe you get a nice case for it. Maybe you're just really careful with it. Keep it very clean away from liquids. You can do all sorts of stuff to really care for a pretty inexpensive laptop and make it last. But these, you know, in this case, the owner is the school or school district. The user is a student, maybe several students over the lifetime of the, of the device. It's, I think it's a very different use case that doesn't mesh very well with the idea of cheap consumer products. And may work better with the idea of creating these kind of hardened uh you know products that that are really durable military like, spec yeah military hardware <laughs> I'm thinking like hardware store you know like tools you get you know when you go to like the hardware store you look at some of the tools they're really durable because they're on work sites all the time and right. they're getting a lot of abuse they're you know all that so they build the tools to be you know really durable and and I think some of the reasons, some of the things that are appealing to consumers, like having something that looks cool and is really lightweight um, and as all as like the latest like technology and all that, it doesn't necessarily need to be there for students either. Like, okay, so it's a little heavier than normal, right? Fine. So it doesn't look as cool because it's a little boxier. That's fine too. Uh, and, you know, having something that maybe is like tried and true tested, like here's a good... Spec that is, you know, it's not the newest technology, but something we can dedicate ourselves to supporting for the next six to eight years or even longer. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I think it might work out even making it modular and repairable. Like you wouldn't do that. You know, Apple's not going to do that because it's not sexy, right? You can't make nice, cool looking MacBooks that, you, that are modular, modular and you can open them up and replace parts and stuff. But you right. don't need that in these school products. You can come up with things that can be opened up and parts can be easily replaced. Companies aren't building them now. And certainly like the Chromebooks are not designed to be that. I'm not suggesting for a second that Chromebooks be designed to be like that. I'm right. suggesting that maybe something like a, like a Chromebook, a school book or something um, be made that could be mass produced and would be easier to maintain So while sacrificing some of this. Because the people that are using them are not the ones that are spending the money on them. So they don't have to be appealing in all the other ways. That, so I will
0: say that um, I have my current laptop.
1: Yeah, um, I was thinking it, of your current laptop. Yeah. Yes,
0: is a, a framework. It's frame.work is the yeah. URL for the company. Um, it's designed to be repair repairable by definition. Yeah. Um, it I don't think it is quite at the durability level that I think you're talking about. Yeah. But in terms of um repairability within reason, um, I think it is it it actually meets the spec. You can replace the keyboard, you can replace the hinge, you can replace yes. the the you know the components that break. Um, which is awesome. Uh, There are what, the other thing that I think is worth understanding though about 2020, and it actually still applies to replacement parts for the framework machines, um, is that uh, the demand for laptops was kind of like the demand for webcams, um, sudden and excessive. Yeah. And the manufacturers couldn't keep up with it. What that meant, though, was that a lot of people were um, essentially just getting whatever the heck they could, whatever was available, mm-hmm. rather than whatever was necessarily appropriate. And I'm not saying that they wouldn't have gone for, you know, the, um, uh, the light pink sexy one in lieu of, you know, the mill one that would last for a decade. But um, th- there just wasn't that level of choice even then uh, for this kind of stuff. So, uh, but yeah, i and like I said, the, the problem that we face right now, even with frame.work, um, is that, yeah, they've got a wonderful, uh, a wonderful list of, of replacement parts, uh, many of which are out of stock and have been for some time. So I think that there's a supply chain issue that actually factors into this as well.
1: Oh yeah. Supply chain is a big thing. I mean, I've heard a lot of times people uh, recommending things like Raspberry Pi computers, not for this use, but for other things. And my thing about uh, every time I hear one of those recommended is yeah, you try to find one because <laughs> it seems like every time I look, everything's out of stock everywhere. Right. Right. So it's tough, but you know, it could be the kind of thing that, uh, you know, perhaps, okay, this, this first generation of every, all the kids having computers, that's that, there was a little of an emergency there, but now for the next generation, maybe, Uh, this kind of computer can be developed Mm -hmm. um, with this in mind. Now, the one thing I think that is working is the, what, you know, this is the software, the software that the kids are using. I've noticed uh, it it basically work anywhere software. It's online stuff. Uh, A lot of times it's basically just Google docs that -hmm. the kids are using. Mm -hmm. I know that's been my experience uh, high school and college um, that, Google Docs is heavily used the cool thing about Google Docs for that case is it works on Chromebooks works on Macs it works on Windows it works yep. on uh, mobile devices it, mean, it works just, on your
0: phone yeah it, it works, works everywhere.
1: everywhere which is great because you know the idea is that first of all you know you should be able to bring your own device mm-hmm school, and I know a lot of schools have that because that lowers the need for the you know, schools. If they have a you know, thousand students, they don't need a thousand devices. Right. They, it may turn out they only need 500. Um, and, uh, but that would allow people to say, yeah, you could use the same Google.com using, even though we're on completely different systems and a completely different type of device. Uh, so that's, that I think that's really good. I do hear from time to time the opposite. I do see tools that are very, Platform specific or apps that are very platform specific. I've never mm-hmm. seen them actually in the wild. Maybe because I live in a big city and it's a public schools, and my kid goes to a big university and all that. But you know, I imagine that this stuff has to be used by somebody. Else, why would I see you know mentions of the software out there? I would hope that um that it would continue to be that. It does bother me that it's a big private company that provides this stuff. Like, right. I'm not sure what the answer is there. It's great that that basically the kids can use all these Google tools for free. Right. Um, it's just that like, uh, it's still Google. I yeah. <laughs> mean, it's not there. They're not like a nonprofit charity. That's just trying to like make life better for school kids. You know, they're a for-profit company trying to make money by tracking people and serving them ads. Um,
0: The other aspect yeah. of, of what you've just described though, is there's a, um, um, an often unstated requirement that, um, Works for a lot of people for sure, but definitely doesn't work for everybody. And that is what I was bragging about to begin with, connectivity. Um, you th- These work everywhere kind of tools all assume you have an internet connection. In fact, some of them assume you've got a good internet connection. And I know that uh, for a variety of reasons in a variety of different locations, that's actually not necessarily a valid location or a valid assumption. And that can uh, basically present its own set of problems to uh, to folks. So maybe some of these, uh, you know, applications on the devices are ways to work around that kind of thing. But you know, because like Google Docs is online only, right? If you don't have a connection, mm-hmm. um, yes, there's That's true. There there's a, a I think there's something you can install in your browser so that it'll try and work offline or something. But bottom line is what you really end up using in a situation like that is. Say you're using the the word processor in Google Docs, you end up using Word or or LibreOffice or OpenOffice or one of the free alternatives. Mm. Um, but the bottom line is that you know connectivity um, is something that you and I are very privileged to take uh, for granted, and not everybody can.
1: Yeah, now that's a good point. I mean, ideally, some nonprofit company would produce a version of Google Office that. Not only worked on every system they could possibly get, you know, figure mm-hmm. out how to get to work on, but have offline capability in as many of those systems as possible. Right. So that you could, you know, like uh, similar to how you would work, uh, you know, Microsoft uh, OneDrive or, you know, uh, Apple iCloud. Um, where you can work with your documents locally, but they mm-hmm. are online as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just does it. It's automatic, and you don't have to think about it. So you know you come you come home and you don't have connectivity at home, you can work on your paper, right. And you could even work on your paper and say, Great, send this to my teacher. And there's no right. connectivity, which is fine. As soon as you arrive at school, you get a little notification that, oh, I was finally able to send that to your teacher, because now I'm connected to Wi Fi. It should be fairly simple. And so much of this is open source, as you mentioned, LibreOffice and everything. There's so much open source code out there. It would be nice if there was some universal system like that. I would imagine it would still get some resistance. Uh, A lot of why Google Docs and such are, are used now is because the schools themselves sometimes were slow to actually mandate a system. They Sometimes just left up to the teachers. Ah, right. And the teacher said, "Well, I work with Google Docs all the time. I'll just tell all my students to do Google Docs. Yep, and, and it's free. That's and that's yep. how it worked. Uh, because I, yeah, I, I did notice some of it, it. Just didn't seem like I never got anything uh, in the high school years." or even in the early college years where they kind of involved the parents a lot freshman year saying, Hey, we have standardized using Google's office suite and your student needs to have an account and blah, blah. I never really saw any of that. It just was like there and the students just understood. And uh, I don't know. So, so yeah, probably, um, hopefully all this stuff is kind of in the works in general.
0: Um, As is improving connectivity. I mean, that's the other thing that is, it is changing. I, I've, I liken it a lot to, um, the rural electrification process or project, mm. um, which, you know, predates my lifetime by at least a f- several decades. But the bottom line was all of the discussions we're having here right now about getting internet into remote locations is the exact same problem that they were trying to solve by getting electricity into remote locations. Sure. And ultimately they did, uh, so I suspect that, you know, it's a process. Um, it And as with all these processes right now, for example, Starlink is serving a lot of people really, really well uh, in locations that just would never have a wired internet connection of any sort. The mm-hmm. problem with Starlink is it's expensive, uh, but that I suspect, um, especially if any of the other competitors ever get into orbit, um, that I suspect that that too will get better over time. But, uh, but yeah, it's an interesting process The I think the big takeaway, my big takeaway from what you just described is that the last three years have been um, challenging, have been interesting. Uh, there's been a lot of success in making it all happen, but also a lot of lessons learned to take forward.
1: Yeah. And, and I think uh, I like your uh, analogy of the, you know, rural electrification system except that internet of course has the possibility of working without cable something that right. electricity despite all the the tesla uh i was gonna say i think theory tesla, tesla
0: had a theory on that yeah
1: <laughs> um it, it never never happened so yeah, know although it can could, now right we're solar seeing right yeah, yeah you could yeah so you have that i mean you still have it's the 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 missing wire is in a different location <laughs> uh but you can of course <laughs> use starlink um Right. And the thing is, is that, you know, first of all, it's expensive, but it can be shared. Yes. You don't have to have everybody just have to have their own Starlink connection. You can have a community, which I think is
0: something that we're seeing, for example, in the Ukraine at the beginning of the Ukraine war, Um, a lot of Starlink receivers were getting smuggled into the country. And yeah, they weren't being used by one person. They were being used by many.
1: Yeah. And the the campground I stayed at that had Starlink, you know, you could look at that as a small community of 30 different families, the people that happened to be camping there. And it was all just one Starlink. But, you know, if you look at it as a kind of budgetary item for like an initiative, then the initiative is like get Internet out to these communities that don't have it now. Um, And then you say it's going to cost this much to lay the cable. But this much to do it via Starlink. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, You know, you could, there are are ways, at least that's a possibility, which with electricity, it was like, back then, it was like, we don't have another possibility. It's like, got to get the wires out there. But then, and then uh, uh, I should also just make sure to mention that a lot of times it's not necessarily that there's a small community that doesn't have internet yet sometimes it's a family in the middle of a, a ocean of connectivity yes that the, simply doesn't have it for one reason or the other yes. whether it's affordability and I know there's a lot of there's a lot of programs for that but also it, a lot of other situations could lead a student coming home from school and not being connected right. um, despite the fact that it's, it's it's not a technical problem
0: so on to Ain't It Cool. So I have a subset for Ain't It Cool this week that I'm calling Ain't It Meh. Yeah, we've been um, doing that a lot. <laughs> So I mentioned, I've mentioned i been mentioning for the past couple of weeks, uh, first of all, Colossus is you know, like a groundbreaking movie for me, Colossus, The yeah. Foreman Project. It was very formative in my early years when I saw it the first time. I've seen it several times, really, really appreciated what it brought to the table. I only found out, like in the last month or two, that there were actually sequels to the original book. So I set out to read the sequels.
1: <sighs> Meh. Yeah, of course. I,
0: I, I, yes, I mean, some sequels you kind of expect that. Um, Some sequels, I guess I had higher hopes. And I guess the reason that I um, am so, I'll just call it ambivalent about the two sequels to Colossus is that um, Colossus was exceptionally well-scoped by that. I mean, there was, um, uh, a villain, there was a problem, there was technology, it was all very well defined within that scope of things. Um, when, in the fall of Colossus, which is the second of the trilogy, um, the quote-unquote solution, I guess you'd call it, uh, turns out to be kind of a Deus ex machina, if however you pronounce that kind of a thing, where <laughs> Something out if, if you can apply a machina to a machina, so to speak. Um, it, it kind of sort of comes out of left field. And as soon as I realized what was happening, I was kind of like, Oh. <laughs> he he went that way. I I'm trying, obviously, I'm trying really hard not to give that stuff away. Um, for anybody that does want to read the book, because it is a big spoiler, right? It's a huge spoiler da- down that road. Um w- Once you sort of get aside from that, then yes, you know, the books were written in the late 60s, early 70s. So it still has a little bit of the, um, uh, I don't want to call it misogyny, but it definitely has a a slightly um, more Heinleinian approach to how women are treated. I say that because I recently reread A Stranger in a Strange Land and there were some pieces there where how the women were treated was getting me kind of a little on the uncomfortable side. Um, But so there's a little bit of that going on. Um, it's an interesting story, I guess, but I was ultimately kind of, you know, this didn't go where I wanted it to go. Mm-hmm. So anyway, yeah. so the the second one is um now the fall of Colossus, which is indeed, I mean, yes, you know, no spoiler there. It's in the title Colossus Falls. Uh, but in the third book, Colossus and the Crab, um, again, expands a little bit on the uh, Um, the, the almost non sequitur that got introduced in the second book. And um, yes, you know, obviously if Colossus is in the title, once again, Colossus is back in the third book, but um, yeah, it's just, it's okay. Whatever. It's, it's meh. So to counteract the meh, uh, a couple of things that I have talked about a couple of times that I think have been really, really cool. uh, Both uh, Star Trek Picard Finished this week or this last week, and The Mandalorian. Uh, I don't know mm-hmm. if there's another season of The Mandalorian coming or not, but um, both of those series um, were, in my mind, a heck of a lot of fun. I truly enjoyed watching Picard's final season. Um, they did a great job with the characters, the relationships, um, the humor that was inserted in various places was on point and, and really made, made things feel really good um Mandalorian same thing it was a good story well told i loved seeing katie sackoff in her role um as Bo um anyway so both of those big big thumbs up for me uh, picard of course is on um uh, paramount plus and the mandalorian is on disney plus
1: yep um so yeah speaking of book sequels <laughs> but mine mine is not disappointing so far um so ha- i think i've talked about it before on the show but probably a long time ago the uh, series uh, known as the Bobiverse, i
0: think um, you've mentioned it but i i have to go yeah look it up
1: <laughs> it, it, it's a book series uh you know by uh dennis taylor and it's a great sci-fi a hardcore sci-fi i would definitely say book series that uh goes with the idea you know, of van neumann machines or van neumann probes actually which the idea behind those is you send out a probe to another star that could not only observe what's there and gather data, but Mm. reproduce itself. So gather metals and stuff and basically Mm. print another version of itself. So then it could send another probe or several probes in different directions from that star. And the idea being is you only need to make one. (laughs) You make one, you send it out, And then it sends out a bunch of probes from the next star and it sends out, you know, an and you wait a couple thousand years and you've explored the entire galaxy, which seems impossible to just build probes, say, on Earth and send them out. It would take millions of years to explore the galaxy. But if you have self-replicating probes, it could happen, you know, at an exponential rate right um and this further throws on there the idea that uh, the probe should be artificially intelligent as a matter of fact the whole premise of the entire series uh, beginning of the very first book was that probes are sent out and the artificial intelligence is actually a a, uh, scanned human brain so in other words they digitize the person (laughs) and they put the person inside a computer and send them out on the probe um and a lot of humor involved especially in the early books uh it turns out a lot of people did not want to go (laughs) on these probes and most of them when they did go they went insane very quickly uh being basically said you're a computer and you are just in deep space for decades and decades um have fun bye (laughs) (laughs) uh but of course it turns out when you send out enough of them you get lucky and this nice guy named bob kind of a guy kind of probably like you or me computer guy (laughs) from the 21st century um, has what it takes, has what it takes to build himself a little virtual environment, a little bit of humor, lots of love of popular culture of science fiction and fantasy and Star Trek and Star Wars and everything enough to have a, a, an imagination and just have fun with it uh, that he's able to actually not go insane. Um, And then of course uh, replicates himself. (laughs) So there are more Bob's, there's a whole bunch of bobs and they have to, and some of them are bill and some of them are other names, you know, and all that. And they're all friends. Um, anyway, great stuff. And that's just the premise basically for this. Bobiverse series, which was a trilogy originally, but the author very smartly decided to just continue because it's too good not to continue because, and you could just lay any other sci-fi story you want on it that the bobs are dealing with. um, and that's exactly what happens in a lot of these books. So the so the premise is great, but then in addition, there's lots of deep uh, alien species they run across, problems that they run across that are you know sci-fi tropes and things like that, and how they mm-hmm. deal with them. Very deep in the science, so things you know talked about aren't just magically made like a lot of talk about discoveries and and right. and like who in the 20th or 21st century had the theory in the first place and all that. Good stuff. Fourth book. Came out fairly recently, and uh, I'm in the middle of enjoying it, and it's just as good. It's it's one of those things. I think it's sci-fi gold that this author has hit on. It's like fantastic story that I mean, you could probably write a hundred books on this, and it won't cool. get old just because cool. of it. And tons of references to today's popular culture because that's what the bobs love. So they play Dungeons <laughs> and Dragons. They make tons of Star Trek references. Tons of Lord of the Rings references. I mean, all over the place. Um, so you have that kind of fun stuff in there, and they make lots of bad puns, and just laugh at their own jokes in a way that's just really fun to uh, you know to read about.
0: Now that's good timing. My fiction queue, my fiction queue is currently empty. So yes, I think this one might be the next one. Sounds yeah. Cool. If
1: you yeah, the first book is just like you'll dive right in and love it. And yeah, the fourth book is the one that I'm talking about, which is uh, Heaven's River. Um, so that's the that's the fourth in the series that I hope goes on forever. I'll certainly read every one. <laughs>
0: cool. Uh, let's cool. see. So time for a little bit of blatant self-promotion. So the article that I want to point in, point folks out for Ask Leo is uh, why is my outlook.com email suddenly full? It's askleo.com slash 156094. I actually ended up writing this and then uh, shuffling my print schedule to make it happen sooner because this is a problem that uh, a Microsoft caused, they were rolling it out and they're rolling it out uh, to a lot more people in recent weeks. So a lot of people are uh, running into the problem. And the problem is simply this, uh, in the past uh, with your free accounts and all of this is for the free Microsoft accounts, if you're using Outlook.com, which includes Hotmail, as your email, you had 15 gigabytes worth of storage online. If you also happen to be using OneDrive, then your OneDrive storage was, I think, five gigabytes for free. What they did is they said, okay, as of now, the attachments and the inline email, the inline images in -hmm. your email, now count against your OneDrive storage usage. So that means that if you have an email that has a 10 megabyte attachment, then that 10 megabytes comes from your OneDrive storage. Presumably not from your your, um, uh, outlook.com storage, but nonetheless. Now notice that I pointed out that the OneDrive storage was five gigabytes, and Outlook.com was 15. So let's say you had 10 gigabytes of email with seven gigabytes of attachments Mm. for whatever reason, right? Maybe it's how you use it. Maybe exchange a lot of documents or pictures or who knows what. As soon as this new rule gets turned on for your account, you are instantly out of space. Because your seven gigabytes of attachments is larger than the five gigabytes of space you have allocated for OneDrive. Um, And they're not very polite about this. Hmm. As soon as this kicks in, you can no longer send email and you can no longer receive email in this account until you fix the problem. Uh Um, It's really frustrating for a lot of folks. Um, I have a hard time not believing anymore that this isn't a move to get people to just buy more OneDrive space. Because of course that'll fix you right up, right? If you throw money at the problem and get more OneDrive space, um, then the problem goes away. And I think Microsoft might be hoping, or at least I don't want to say the company at this point, I want to say that there's a really bad product manager who said, this is a way for our, our division to make a revenue. Um, uh, decided to do this. So anyway, there's an article on that. Why is my Outlook.com email suddenly full? Hmm.
1: Yep. cool. I'll um, I'll point people to a video I made on making your MacBook battery last longer. You know, the the situation where you have that unusual day ahead of you where, you know, you're going to be on the road all day Mm -hmm. flying or whatever. And you're like, boy, I want to I want my battery to be maxed, you know, maximum charge. And I want to be really careful of how I use it all day long. So there's a whole bunch of neat little tips like, uh, you know, lower your screen brightness a bit, uh, Mm -hmm. have your, have your display go to sleep a little faster, all that stuff. You know, basically, uh, all the things that I do when I know I'm hitting one of those days and I want my MacBook air to, to like last as long as possible before I need to plug it in.
0: Yep. Sounds good. Mm -hmm. I may have to take a look at that and see if I can't translate some of that into, uh,
1: Oh, yeah. I'm sure most of it's the same on uh, Windows laptops. Maybe just, you know, look in a different place for the setting, but basically the same.
0: Yeah, ultimately. Yeah. Yeah. There's And there's a, I don't know if uh, Mac has it. I've looked for a while, but there actually is a battery saver feature in Windows. So that's like one of the things you turn on. Low
1: power mode is what it's called. uh,
0: Yeah. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, Cool. All righty. I think that pretty much wraps us up for another week. Um, as always the show notes for this week are at tehpodcast.com slash teh190 if you've got a comment or question for us leave it there we will absolutely see it thanks as always for listening and we will see you again here real soon take care everyone bye-bye
1: bye